The Talking Stigma podcast featured Gareth Thomas and me, Craig Doyle, talking to other well-known guests about stigma and how we can make stigma a thing of the past through knowledge and education. Listen to Gareth talking about his HIV-positive diagnosis, how people have treated him, how he has felt since he announced his status back in September 2019, and how through scientific advances, being on effective treatment means the levels of HIV are so low in his system that the virus cannot be passed on through sexual contact. The intimate discussions draw on personal insights of Gareth and other special guests, comparing and contrasting their experiences of stigma. Hello, and you're very welcome to Tackle HIV with Garrett Thomas and the Talking Stigma podcast series. I'm Craig Doyle, and throughout this series, I'm talking to Gareth and other well-known guests about stigma and resilience and what you do about them. How do you beat them? How do you help people overcome it? Very, very serious topics, but we'll deal with it in a heavy and lighthearted way. It's a really interesting podcast series, and it's really, really good to have your company. And as always, it's wonderful to have your company, Alfie. How are you? I'm ve- I'm doing very very well. Yeah, you look well today. You're wearing you look quite grown up today. You got like a checkered shirt on and a, with a collar and and a, a little kind of woolen jumper. Well, I've taken the opportunity to dress up because over the last twelve months I've not really been out of a tracksuit. So any chance to put any item of clothing on, then I've taken it and I've gone to town actually today. You look very very smart. Um, what are we doing? What's this series all about? What's it mean to you? What's it for? Um, I think it's. Starting conversations to educate people around stigma, because I think stigma is such a broad topic um, that people sometimes can't quite get their head around the non-conscious bias or the discrimination, whether it be obvious or unobvious, that they cause to people, whether that be through race, religion, sexuality, living with HIV, ability, disability. Um, so I think it's really good to explore every single individual version of stigma so people can understand and see uh, see people, see society kind of in a different way. And you're doing this because you're someone who's suffered from that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing this because I feel I've suffered from it, but also I kind of I have the ability to talk from experience. And when I say talk about experience... My sexuality became something that I needed to overcome and other people needed to try and accept. So I lived on the side of a privilege of being um, a perceived heterosexual male and then being openly gay. So I saw from both sides of the fence and living with HIV and, and previously not living with HIV. So I feel that I've had the ability to live a life without stigma and discrimination and then live life with stigma and discrimination so i can i see how it is on both sides of the fence and this is all part of a bigger campaign of course it's a, it's a great tie-in with yourselves with uh vive healthcare and of course the terence higgins trust you're just all working together really really good campaign um you mentioned COVID, and it's it's interesting because COVID is not choosy it affects absolutely everybody no matter what color what creed whether you're able-bodied, disabled, it doesn't matter. Everybody is uh, potentially someone who can get it. And it's kind of a strange way it brought us together uh, because we're all so fearful of it. Over the course of this series, we've spoken to Dion Dublin. We've spoken about race. We spoke to Kate Richardson-Walsh. We've talked about sexuality and the stigma that goes with that. We're going to talk about disability today. But 
we're going to talk with someone who is um, her heroics in 2012 at the London Paralympics were just phenomenal. She is just a poster girl for the sport. She's absolutely amazing, an incredible athlete. I'm going to embarrass her now and give her the whole biog here because it's just so impressive. You read this out. It is, of course, Hannah the Hurricane Cockcroft. She holds the world records for the 100 metres, 200 metres, 400 metres. Oh, it doesn't stop there, Alfie. <laughs> no. No, it doesn't. 800 metres. No, Alfie. More. I want more. 1,500 metres in her classification. She has the Paralympic records at 100 metres, 200 metres, 400 metres and 800 metres. Oh, my word. She obviously competed for Great Britain at the 2012, that wonderful summer of sport we had in London where she won how many gold medals? Two gold medals. Two gold medals, and she won three further gold medals at the 2016 Summer Paralympics in Rio. She is unbelievable, but also she's used her high profile, her success, the fact that people really look up to her as a campaigner against disability discrimination and accessibility and combating stereotypes and talks about, you know, all the stigmas that go that with disability, the fight that she and like so many others like her have on her hands. And it's just brilliant to have her with us today. So how are you doing, Hurricane? How's the form? How are you? Well, I think my head's no longer going to fit in the room after that introduction. <laughs> so uh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'd, have a, I'd have a T-shirt made up with all those on, wouldn't you? It's just that, that <laughs> I, as you were rolling off, I thought there can't be any more. Like, is there any more events that you could even <laughs> take part in, let alone win? Not only that, but in the middle of a second lockdown, she has salon quality hair. Oh, where does it end? Oh, thanks. <laughs> how are you? How, how are you dealing? Even with... watched it. That's it. <laughs> how are you dealing with everything? How are you dealing with lockdown? How's life? You know what? It's it's all right. I'm getting a little bit fed up now. Um, obviously, I think like everyone, but just just getting on with it. You know, just trying to train as best we can, and try and appreciate the fact that I can stay in my house. So you know, find the positives. <laughs> <laughs> a Yorkshire lash a Yorkshire lash oh Jesus oh Freud <laughs> a Yorkshire lass a Welshman and an Irishman good luck listeners oh there's a joke there's a joke there there's a joke there so the Olympics are meant to happen this summer Alfie right I yeah. mean we don't we don't know what's going to happen there Hannah I guess you're you're training in, in hope that it all happens and you get to go at it again What, what what's, what's your view on things yeah so yeah train as hard as I can obviously We've just got hope. That's all we've got. You've got to hope that it's going ahead and you've got to train like it is. Um, you just, if you think for one second that it's not going ahead, then your training is just not going to, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to go well. So from all the information that we've had so far, um, it's looking pretty positive. Um, I don't know if my mum and dad are going to be able to come watch, but as long as I can actually get on the track and, and have a little race, then I'm ultimately at this point i'm not bothered to just want to race <laughs> does that does that affect like your preparation um because i know if i was preparing for the weekend or preparing for six months time i'd kind of, it's kind of like that carrot dangling but for the possibility of it not happening do you think sometimes oh you know usually i do like another mile or is that just your focus is that you know what i'm going to think i'm going to assume it's happening and i'm going to train as if it is definitely happening. Yeah, it's exactly that. You know, this time last year when they first announced lockdowns and the games being postponed, I did have kind of like a week where I was just like, what is the point? And me and my boyfriend, my boyfriend's also a Paralympian, so we sat down and we just said, you know what? We've got nothing better to do. Let's just use this time to be the strongest and the fastest that we've ever been. And I actually think, you know, I've learned how to be an athlete, you know, in this time. And it sounds really stupid. I've been doing this for 13 years now, but... 
this time, you know, I haven't been able to rely on my coaches or the physios or the doctors. None of that's been around me and I've just had to do it myself and I've, I've learned a lot. So yeah, now it is literally like I've got nothing better to do. I might as well do that extra mile, that extra lift, that whatever it is. I might as well just do it because otherwise I'm just watching telly. <laughs> Give us an idea of your, your kind of standard training week. What kind of mileage do you do? Um, so at the moment we're in lots of I like heavy mileage because it's still the winter. Um, so a short session is about 10 miles. A long session is uh, just under 20. Yeah, um, same as, same so as it literally, same. Yeah. Yeah. It's just average mileage, you know, um, <laughs> heavy weights in the gym and, and lots of miles. It's, Pretty boring, but you just got to get it on. Get I didn't do that far in the car. It. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's just to comprehend that kind of mileage is completely insane. But also, you're—I mean—you're doing this in your chair on public roads, okay? Um, and it's your training chair, so you're dealing with every kind of bit of street furniture, every lump, every crack in a road surface. What's it like out there? when you're relying on a, on a set of wheels underneath you? Sometimes it's pretty scary. Um, a lot of cars don't really like you being on the road. Um, I won't go on the road without a cyclist. It's too dangerous. Um, I remember when I first started wheelchair racing, I went out with my dad and my dad drove behind me. And he was like, right, we can't see you over the bonnet of the car. So you're never going out on your own. But I've had people try and knock my dad off his bike while he's cycling behind me. I've had people try and, you know, drive as close to my elbows as they can. So you're not just competing with potholes, which we have for an eternity. Like every bit of road you push on is a pothole. Um, people are just mean. They're just mean people. So it's it's not too bad at the moment. No one's got anywhere to drive. So everyone's stay off roads, which is quite like um, one positive of lockdown. But uh, yeah, normally it's, it's not the nicest place to be on the roads. And what's your favourite signal choice? Do you go for the finger or the wanker side? <laughs> I leave that to whoever's with me. I'm normally like, I, I normally don't even really notice. I've got my head down and I'm just trying to go as quick as I can. The thing is, normally I'm going quicker than the car. So I don't know what their problem is. I'm not in the way. <laughs> do, you find, do you find that it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's this thing when people get behind the wheel that if you met them face to face, you know, they would never be... Because I suppose it's a form of discrimination, you know, it's a, it's, it's a form of ownership, um, that they wouldn't be that way. It's just the fact that you're stopping them maybe getting to their destination five seconds earlier than they would have if you if if, if, if you weren't on the road. So they feel that, you know, they, there's this ownership over you that they're in, a, they're in a car that's stronger than yours, so they have... They kind of have the response. They they have like the responsibility um, or kind of the ownership over you. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's literally just impatience. Like, like you said, they're going to get there five seconds earlier if I'm not in the way. So it makes no difference. And it's normally people who are going like double the speed limit anyway because I train on like twenty mile an hour roads, so I know that I'm safe. And they're bombing up them at like forty or fifty. I'm like, well. Who's in the wrong here? It's probably not me because I'm going 20, so it's okay. Um, it's just it's just frustrating. Like, you get people... Some people are really supportive. Like, they'll give you a little toot and they'll give you a little wave and it's great. And especially if I'm out around home, like, around Halifax, um, people know who I am, so they're, like, waving at their windows, they're video recording me, they're shouting at me. It's great. I love that. But then I come away from home and, obviously, no one really understands who I am or what I'm doing and... Um, yeah, they're not that supportive then. <laughs> I definitely double toot you. 
I was. I give it a no. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I would put a. Um, if I had the achievements that you had, and I was out on a public road, and I think if I was, you're almost bound to experience that. I'd kind of advertise who I was. I'd want people to know who I was, and that actually, you know, probably the person who's trying to barge you off the road a couple of years ago was saying, you know, being really supportive of you. And saying what great things, great things you're doing. So I'd make it. I'd make it. I'd make it known that it was me. So you'd have like five Olympic golds, ten world championships on the back of the chair. Yeah, pretty much. Beep if you dare. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Come close, and I will finish you. There you go. We'll advise you well here. You're listening to two very wise <laughs> yeah. men here. Um, Hannah, so obviously you race in a chair, but obviously you live... get a little top printed. Yeah, you should. Yeah, I'll wear. I'll wear one for you. We'll go around yeah. beeping the people. Let's go back to your your uh, childhood, your early life, and and look, you're you're in a wheelchair, not just for racing, but as a part of your life as well. What, why, what what happened to you? Why are you in a chair? Yeah, so um, when I was born, I had two cardiac arrests, uh, pretty much directly after birth, that left me with multiple areas of brain damage. Uh, the brain damage then led to nerve damage, and it basically just means the messages can't get from my brain to the other areas of my body. Um, so my feet grew deformed and my legs grew deformed. And then obviously because of that, I have problems with my mobility. So use a wheelchair to get around. Um, I can walk short distances um, unaided, which I think is a pretty big achievement when doctors told my parents that I'd never live an independent life and I'd never walk and struggle to do things for myself. So pretty proud that I could do that. And um, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. Why? <laughs> And one for you as well, Alfie. I don't know about you. Why do I find that such an awkward question to ask? Because I know people in wheelchairs, I know you always hate the idea of someone looking at you and you know that's all they want to know, first of all, is why, why, why? I, I, I don't think I, I don't think it's a bad thing to feel awkward asking a personal question because I think it's kind of how we are wired. I think it's respectful. So you, what you have is a huge amount of respect to Hannah or a huge amount of respect to me that you don't want to actually make that case to be something that you feel is going to define how you think about us. Um, so I feel when people do find it awkward to ask questions, we automatically think um, it's because we don't want to discuss that subject because we don't know enough about that subject to have a conversation about it. But I do feel people as well feel awkward about it because, you know, if I was to ask Hannah, that question, I'd kind of feel awkward because I wouldn't want to think that it's really that relevant. But also, I think having the conversation is really relevant on a on a on 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 a public platform. So I don't think it's a terrible thing to feel bad about asking it. Do you think, Hannah? I don't think it is. I think it's how you ask the question. Like you feel bad because you're a good person and you asked it in a polite way, whereas. A lot of the time you have people just in the supermarket just come up and you go, oh, what's happened to you then? Nothing, nothing's happened to me. Like, I'm, I'm just a human and I'm just trying to do my shopping and you haven't even had said hello or told me your name. So why should I tell you my life story? I think if it comes up in conversation or, you know, if, if it's genuinely going to affect what, what's going on that day, then it's an absolute fair enough question. And I'm, I'm obviously not embarrassed by it. and I'm not ashamed of my disability. So I'll tell anyone what it is. But when people just randomly come, when ask you and you're like, well, you're just clearly being nosy, so it's kind of rude. Um, 
I just, I just make up a story, make them feel really bad and not tell them the truth. <laughs> do you? What stories do you make up? What's the best one been? Oh, I just tell them like, like I'm, in times I've got out of my wheelchair and just walked off and I've been like, oh, nothing. I'm just using the wheelchair. <laughs> like I've genuinely had people come up to me in the street. I remember I was um, pushing to uni one day and this guy came up to me and was like, stop, stop. You have to, you have to stop. And I was like, I'm really late. What's wrong? And he was like, I need to pray for you. I'll make you better. And I was like, I don't need to be better. Like I'm not ill. So I, he prayed for me and I just got up and walked off. And he was like, oh, oh. And I was like, you're, you're an idiot. You are an idiot. <laughs> oh, that, oh gosh, that's funny. I want to hear his version. Of, you'll never guess what I did. <laughs> I cured this oh, girl. That's so wrong. I have Jesus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you another weird question? I bet I'll, you bet you do this as well, Alfie. Uh, when I'm talking to someone in a wheelchair, I always end up going down on my knees because I'm used to like it being eye to eye yeah. with someone, and I feel really awkward standing up. But then I never know whether I'm making the person in the chair feel awkward by kneeling down. Is it patronising? No, well, I don't think so. I'm I'm honestly not bothered. Like I think I'm I just I'm not offended by anything, so I just get on with it. And it kind of frustrates me when people are offended by things like that. Like the person you're speaking to is just making an effort. I um I was speaking to the Duke of Edinburgh one day, so he said, "Oh, I would bend down to your level to speak to you. Why? But oh, my knees aren't really up to it. Have you ever considered getting a wheelchair that raises up to people's eye level? Like, I'll fund it for you if you want to design one." And I was just like, "I'm alright, but it's alright. You can just look down on me. It's fine. Oh. You are the Duke of Edinburgh." <laughs> I, I think I think when it comes to adults, is we are. We are or we should be wise enough to realise that if somebody is coming from a place of patronising or a place of discrimination, then you understand. But I think if people are coming from a good place, even though it might be deemed as offensive as adults, we kind of know if that discrimination is coming from a place of actually I feel discriminated by that, but I know you're not doing it in a discriminative way, then I think the person, the individual... Um, kind of has a right to to address that and to kind of say, you know, you don't need to come down to my level. It's okay. Um, but when it comes from a discriminative way, you know, you could go down to somebody's level and pretend you're very childlike. So all of a sudden you become kind of small in stature and then it becomes very discriminative. Or when people ask me about living with HIV, they can ask, or my sexuality, they can either ask me in a way of wanting to learn and evolve or a way of discrimination. Words can be a very much the same words, but said in very different, give very example, different ways. Give me an example of that. Um, for instance, um, somebody could um, ask me, am I living with HIV? So in a very conversational way, like, are you living with HIV? What's it like? Or, oh, are you living with HIV? Oh, are you all right? Are you going to die? Really? Oh my God, you're going to live. How's... And then, you know, and them exact words can be said in a completely different way that I would engage with that person and I would feel that that person is not discriminating against me. But said in the way of just how I put it, which happens quite a lot, then I feel like, I don't even feel like I should have to answer your questions because you're actually analysing me rather than asking me. You're so right. It's tone, isn't it, Hannah? I mean, if the person came up to you at a, in the supermarket at a party and goes, what happened to you then? Or someone came up and said, hey, how are you? So so what happened What happened to you? Why are you in a chair? You'd probably you'd deal with them very differently, wouldn't you? It's it's tone. It's respect. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's it's definitely how the question's asked. You know, if it's a kid who's over and asks me, like, 
I'm totally fine answering it because they're just they're just interested. They're just trying to learn. But it's not even when people ask a question for me. Like I have so many people, especially if I'm walking, so many people just stare. And it's like children all look and they'll be like, oh, she's a bit different. That's fine. Whereas I have literally had adults follow me around the supermarket to stare at me. It's, it baffles me because my mom would give me a right click around the ear for doing that. <laughs> are they middle-aged blokes and are they just a bit sleazy? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're both probably. <laughs> so Hannah, I mean, through your success, it just shows that you've had to deal with all these different issues in your life and you've dealt with them very, very well. But bring me back to your childhood and the first time you realised you were different and the stigma that was associated with that and how you dealt with it. So I think I, I started realising that I was different um, to other people when I first went to school, um, which is it's, it's strange, you know, for a young girl, um, you know, I used to come home and, and ask my mum all these questions and um, Toys R Us in America actually released uh, a doll, a Barbie doll called the Share a Smile Becky doll. It was only released in America and my mom knew that I, you know, I was such a girly girl. I loved Barbies. I loved dolls. So at this point, you know, I, I didn't touch my wheelchair. I hated anything disability related. I just wanted to be like everybody else. And um, I didn't know anybody else with a disability. So, you know, I was always questioning why, why I was so different. So mom wrote to Toys R Us and just explained, you know, my fifth birthday was coming up. Um, I was struggling with with accepting that I was disabled. Was there any way that she could pay for this doll and they could get it to us? And yeah, on, on my fifth birthday, there was a, a share of smile back all waiting for me on the doorstep when we opened from Toys R Us. And from that, from that, you know, for that, I've got these pictures at home of me in a party dress, sat in my wheelchair with my my wheelchair Barbie sat next to me, and it was such a big thing for me at the time because, you know, mum mom was trying to show me that oh you know like you're not different look barbie's just like you so it's, it's okay um and it, it was massive for me um so yeah that was that was one of the big things for me like realizing i was different and, and not really understanding why and it's so hard to explain to a, a little girl you know how to explain brain damage and deformed limbs you, you can't really you can't so you just gotta do it the way you can and mom was amazing with that and then you know, from there, like the the next time I really struggled with being so different was when my, my best friend at school got her first pair of high heels and I came home at like 10 or 11 crying to mom that I wanted a pair and she was so mean because she wouldn't let me have any. And again, like she she just tried to explain things in a very adult way to me, but it just all see, it all seems so unfair. And sometimes it still does, you know, I'm not saying that I just accept everything now. Um, I hated it growing up. I just wanted to be the same. And um, and then obviously in sport, that was the other big thing, you know, outside of that, you know, I was never bullied. I never, never struggled making friends. I was quite a confident kid. Um, and so I never understood why sport was something I couldn't do. Like everyone else did it. Why can't I? And, and everyone treated me like themselves. So uh, I, I didn't find sport until I was 12 years old. 12 years old was the first time that I met another disabled person. Um, it was the first time that I saw someone else in a wheelchair. And yeah, it was the first time that I tried sport. So PE teacher brought in the local wheelchair basketball team who were doing like a tour of the local schools. Um, and I remember that it was such a life-changing day for me because the guys came in and 
they were just so quick in their chairs and just so agile and fit and it was amazing and up until this point I had no idea I'd never heard of Paralympics I'd never heard of para sport I didn't know that I could be a part of it and and suddenly these guys came and, and blew my world right up right open and yeah that that night I had my dad taking me to the coach's house and uh that was it I was signed to the team for six, six years after that so that was the end of me feeling different <laughs> that's amazing did you find it was it was you that felt different or was you made to feel different by others because when you talk about that it just sounds like inwardly your view of everybody else was that you was different was that view of everybody else that you was different or kind of did you create that difference because yes you have a physical difference but was that forced upon you by everybody else or just the fact you couldn't do what everybody else could do or perceived to be able to do what everybody else could do you actually felt different yourself yeah no it, it was definitely just how I felt um like I said no one ever treated me any different but I think you know the the thing is when you're a disabled person growing up in a very able-bodied world you know I had no disabled friends I didn't meet another disabled person until I was 12 years old um I just I just felt like I was completely alone in in being my kind of different and as okay as obviously my parents tried to make it you know buying the doll and and trying to just explain things to me as an adult even when I was a child you still look at people and you still wish that you could do what they're doing um so it was definitely something I felt you know I was I was never bullied I never had comments I always had loads of friends but I think at a young age you, you just you just want to be one of the pack don't you? you just want to be like everybody else and I definitely definitely wasn't did the school ever try to include you in any kind of games? Was there anything you could do in PE class together? No. <laughs> no. I started doing PE when I was 12. My teacher, my PE teacher when I was 12 at secondary school, um, she brought in the local wheelchair basketball team because they were doing a tour of the local area, all the local schools. And that was the first time I ever saw Parasport. I ever met disabled people. Like that day, just stick my mind ever, it completely changed my life because it just, you know, I'm, I'm a person that if you tell me I can't do something, I will go out of my way to work out a way to do it. And sport, I just couldn't work out how to do it. I couldn't work out how to get my foot in that door. This guys turned up in these wheelchairs and were just whizzing around. I was like, that, that's me. That's my calling. I'm going to that. So yeah, that night, my dad, my dad took me around to the coach's house and you know, I was playing for the team a week later. So literally all it took was for someone to show me that it was there and I could have done it for all this time, but I waited 12 years. What a waste of 12 years. No, <laughs> so, Alfie, can you imagine what it was like for her parents that day? Oh, yeah. Like, um, yeah, it must just be, uh, I don't know, I, I set, this This is a word I kind of hate to use, but it, I, I think it brings true, is, is giving everybody around you a sense of normality, a sense of what everybody else can do all of a sudden something you thought was never possible to be able to do and i think i, I what, what i like about what hannah said there is the the family being part of it as well because i think people only ever think of hannah as well about the individual and how it impacts on the individual but the ability to be able to do things impacts so much or as much on people around you as well I mean, there's been a lot of change, Hannah, and I hope schools are, are different now. But if you were to go back to school as a, as a five-year-old now, what, what, what would you say to them all? You know what? I've, I've got nothing against the school. Aim safety gone mad. It's, 
there's all this red tape around everything and the teachers at the time just, just weren't given the education or the knowledge or the equipment to actually get me involved you know so I don't hold anything against the school at all and I'm to be proud of of where I've where I've actually got to and you know they saw me they know where I came from so they know how much it's taken to to get to Paralympic champion but you hope that it doesn't happen in schools now but I, I hear it all the time you know I hear kids and they come and they tell me like oh I'm not allowed to do sport I'm disabled and you're like no this way we're so far down the line. Like, let's, we've had 2012, we've had the game changing time. Like, it's supposed to get disabled people in general involved in sport. You just have to be creative. You know, there is nothing difficult letting them join in in their wheelchair. You know, for me, I could have done that at school, but um, I might have ran someone else over. So that's not allowed. Or, you know, if, if understandably, everyone can't do, I don't know, cross country, but. Everyone field events, you know, you can sit in a wheelchair and throw something probably further than anybody else. And um, that's how school started adapting PE for me once once we'd kind of worked it out and they'd seen that I had a hunger to be involved. Um, do you know what's really scary, uh, Hannah and Alfie? The thought that for, you know, not all of the 12 years, for the bulk of them, there was a little girl sitting in the corner who had the potential to win five Paralympic golds, 10 world titles, break nine world records you know, be given an, an MBE, all these achievements. And, and she was just sitting there mm. because no one knew how to unlock that. Yeah. And I, I think what hearing what Hannah said then about kind of, she still hears stories now of children who are, um, for want of a better word, stigmatized against because people are unsure because they're different in some way of, of, of what to do with them. And I think the sad thing is, is that you think how many have been lost and how many sadly will con still continue to be lost in a system that doesn't know how to deal with a form of difference. Um, and Hannah is one story of success, yet I'm sure she could tell us, as probably I could, as you could, that they, as for all the stories of success, because of stigma and discrimination, there's probably twice, three times, four times as many stories of loss as success. Yeah, it's um, it's terrifying, really. And I guess that's the importance of having people like Hannah, isn't it, Alfie? Because she inspires people. Yeah, yeah. And it's, 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 it's almost, and I don't know if, Hannah, if you agree with this, I understand that you are so dedicated to your sport, but I suppose part of that dedication and part of that drive, part of that training is to keep your platform to be able to stop forms of discrimination happening, to give you that voice, to give you that ability to be heard. Yeah, massively. Um, I think that's exactly what it is for me. I realise that I am in a, a privileged position. Um, a lot of disabled people just, just aren't heard. They're not listened to. They're not given the chance to speak. And, you know, I did an interview a few weeks ago and the lady in the interview said, oh, you, you complain a lot. And I was like, what do you mean you complain a lot? She was like, well, every time there's a problem, you're the one who, who says something about it. And I'm like, yes, because I'm in a place where people might listen. And so if I don't say something, then nothing ever changes. If we all just sit back and pretend like everything's okay and that we're happy as Paralympians getting lesser sponsorship or we're happy as disabled people to not be able to get into the local supermarket, or not be able to go to the top in the local shopping centre. If we just sit back and let that happen, then nothing changes. 
So you have to use the platform. You have to use the voice. And I know that as soon as I stop winning gold medals, that, that voice goes with it. That platform goes with it. So, yeah, I mean, I love my training and that's why I do it. Um, and for a long time, I just did it selfishly and, and I want to be the best just for me. But as I've grown with the sport, I've realised that I have an opportunity to make a difference or to try and make a difference. So you have to use that in the best way that you can. Yeah, and I also think what she's saying there is so relevant because when she says the word selfish, people sometimes think that when you're calling for change, it's for it's for yourself, so it's very selfish. But the reality is, is what it is, is very non-selfish. So Hannah has every right to chillax for the rest of her life because she's achieved things that people on this planet can only ever dream of achieving. But the fact that she uses what she's achieved in a non-selfish way to help others is the most non-selfish thing you could ever think of. Yet people see it as when that woman says you do a lot of complaining, you're not complaining for you, you're complaining for a bigger cause than what you were about. And you just have to happen to have a connection to that cause. So it's the most non-selfish thing I believe people can do is when people have a platform, they use that platform to create better environments for other people to create, to have better experiences that you had previously. Also, the term complaining, people only say it's complaining when they don't like what they hear. Yeah. You're not complaining, you're pointing out where change needs yeah. to come. Maybe that's a form of discrimination in itself, because maybe if that's an able-bodied athlete, they're seen as a great spokesperson for, for you know, for the sport or for the world. And I wonder if, do you see any differences on that front between yourself and able-bodied athletes? Oh, massively, all the time. Um you know, it even comes down to when we train at the, the National Performance Centre with the team, so the, the Olympic and Paralympic team uh, both are based there. Um, you know, we can't even get a lane on the track or we're told to keep out of the way of the, the Olympic runners so that we don't injure them. And it's like, well, you know, my training is just as important. So, you know, like I said, it comes down, it, you, you notice the difference in uh sponsorship you notice the difference in competition opportunity you notice the difference in the way that we're spoken about as athletes um there's massive massive differences and i'm so aware that when you when you talk about them you sound like you're ungrateful and you sound like you're complaining like i'm lucky like i have amazing sponsors behind me and and you know i can I mostly get to the competition race at but again it's not just about me you know I, my boyfriend he's european champion he has no sponsors uh most of the time I pay to compete. Um, it's crazy. And you speak about it and people go, oh, stop complaining. And you're like, I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to point it out. <laughs> it still affects you day to day then, Hannah, does it? Being in a wheelchair, discrimination, it's, it's an everyday thing for you. Or is it? Oh, massively, yeah. Yeah, like not even down to being an athlete, just, just going out. Like day to day, you, I don't know, visit visit a shop and there's three steps into the shop and they don't have a ramp or you go to pay for something and the counter's above your head so you can't actually see the card machine and you're just swiping and hoping they've put the right amount in <laughs> like it's really really tiny things that if they were fixed like they wouldn't cost a lot to fix and they wouldn't be that big an issue to to do something about but because I don't, I don't even know why people don't do it, but because they're there, they make your life that little bit more difficult. And it's, it's sometimes just so frustrating. But they're like, not tiny things, are they, Hannah? Because they're, they, they bring attention onto you that you probably don't want in a shop like that. And it's probably a little bit awkward and embarrassing and it affects your day. I think they're called major things, don't you, Alfie? Uh, yeah, I, I do. And I think she really, I, 
again, I, I think Hannah, like so many other people of protected characteristics, feel like they don't want to say too much about or feel bad about what's saying about saying what's wrong. And it's interesting because we fight we fight so much for equality, and everybody understands what equality is, but they don't know how unequal we are we as a society make other people feel just by the simple actions or simple things that are going on going on around us and then when people want this equality when they fight for equality as she keeps saying this like she can't she get told stop you get told stop complaining but what right does a shop have to make hannah feel awkward um or to me feel normal um and what i think is really interesting about what hannah did one of the things she did when I re- re- uh, read about it is I think only to understand what it feels to fe- be discriminated against, you really need to walk a mile in that person's shoes. Otherwise, it's really difficult. And when she asked, um, am I right in saying this, Anna? You, you asked for Boris Johnson to spend 24 hours in a wheelchair going around London. I think that's such a such an interesting way of saying to somebody, you know, this is a realization of what my life is all the time. Just experience it and see how discriminated in the most, to you, menial things, but to me, major things. Yeah, that's massive. Oh, he turned me on flat in about five seconds, by the way. Did he turn you? <laughs> so you actually did ask him? Uh, I presented the idea to him live on. I think it was like Channel 5 News. Um, <laughs> I'd been working on a sport accessibility campaign that day and I just got I just got annoyed. You know, like the, the reasonings that I just backed about not making transport accessible, not making shops accessible was always just stupid stuff. And it's just like, oh, you know what? Like, just come give it a go. You keep saying that it's accessible. Come and... Don't use your legs for a day because honestly, you, you wouldn't. You just wouldn't get anywhere. Like you, you just wouldn't. You wouldn't see anything. You wouldn't get anywhere. Never mind on time, and didn't want to do it. Funnily enough, <laughs> do, do you know, Hannah? I have a proposal. I, do you know what I think should happen? I think any town planner, people who are building shopping center architects, building shopping centers, town centers, whatever public areas, should all have to when they're surveying it, should all have to spend a day in a wheelchair in that area. And just really get a sense of what they need to develop and change and build and adapt. Um, because you're absolutely right. Until you have, you know, in a chair, wheeling yourself around, you won't know. But am I like way out of sync then to think? I would assume that that would happen anyway. Is that all right, Hannah? When things are built, especially new buildings, my assumption, and whether I'm just being, I don't know, too nice a person, my assumption is that they would take that into account or does that not happen? Um, I think I think that's what's supposed to happen, but I can definitely say it doesn't. <laughs> like, you, you, I don't know. I think that disabled people are involved in the decisions that are made. Like, you'll go somewhere and they'll go, yeah, we're fully accessible, and you'll get there and there'll be a step into the building and you'll be like, what part of accessible do you not understand? Who told you that your building was accessible? Because it's not. Um, and yeah, I think the problem is disabled people are never involved in the conversation. It's always an able-bodied person telling you what you need instead of one asking you, right, what would make your life easier? What what would make this work? And th- look, you, Hannah's hit on something here again, Alfie. 
and we had this conversation with Dion Dublin. We, it's just constant conversation. There are a lot of token efforts made to change things. But until you have someone uh, in a wheelchair on a town planning committee, you're not going to change the accessibility of a town. Until you have a black or an Asian person on the senior executive board, you're not going to be really inclusive in that workspace or in that industry. I mean, it, it isn't about token measures. It's about starting at the very, very top of the pyramid and letting it kind of work its way down. And every single conversation we have doing this podcast, it comes down to the same thing. The difference between token efforts and real efforts. Yeah, and I think until things change, we will always have token gestures. And when I say change... For instance, what Hannah's talking about there with certain buildings is we might say, okay, we have these processes to go through, but maybe we need to amend it to um, enable disability access. You don't need to amend things that were already difficult, as Hannah has just said, um, for accessibility or for any other thing, is you need to change it. And you need to change it by having information from the people that affects. And so many, so often councils, governing bodies are not diverse enough to deal with the amendments that they need to put into place. So they feel like an amendment is a token gesture when the reality is, I'm sure if Hannah sat on um, committees, like if I sat on committees, I would want things changed. I would want things new. I would want things keeping up with society as we want it to be now rather than amending something that was already obviously hugely flawed by the problems Hannah has just to maybe get into a building it means there's a flaw so don't amend it change it yeah don't put out the fire just put in fire prevention right exactly that's it let's talk about that joyous summer in 2012 the London Olympics um, it was just amazing the Olympics the Paralympics the whole festival of sport how life-changing was that for you I can't even explain it. Um, London 2012 completely changed my life. Like, I went in as this naive 20-year-old from Yorkshire, just thinking, oh, this is a good fun. Like, we'd kind of been warned that not that many people, it won't be sold out. Like, not that many people will watch on telly. Like, just enjoy it. It's, it's, it's a big event, but, you know, just enjoy it. So that's what I went there to do. And when I was in that Paralympic bubble, that's all I thought it was. I was like, oh, that's nice that we've sold it out. Like, everyone's family and friends have come to watch, but no one outside is watching, so it's fine. And then I'll always remember the day that we first left, kind of left the, the Olympic bubble. Um, I'd won my second gold medal before. Uh, I'd been banned from the Westfield Shopping Centre until I'd finished competing, so I was dead keen to go shopping. And I went in and... Um, uh, they'd offered me like they offered me like a bodyguard and they offered me like security and all this stuff and I was like what are you on about I'll be absolutely fine like leave me alone go shopping and I went in and just couldn't move like everyone knew who I was I went into I don't know some news agents and there was either my face or Johnny Peacock's face or Dave Weir's face on the front of every newspaper every magazine like and I, I was just like oh maybe people maybe people did watch what I did oh okay and honestly like my life's never been the same since I could be busy every day like I could literally be somewhere new every day and it, it's amazing but at the time like 20 years old I came out and I just forgot that I was an athlete I was just going to parties going to this award ceremony this photo shoot like whatever it was I was like yeah I'll be there yeah I love it um I just completely forgot how to be an athlete and what training was but Oh, honestly, like 
I think London 2012 just it just changed the way that people viewed the Paralympics. You know, it it turned us into into athletes that people actually admire, and it was just amazing to be a part of. Absolutely incredible. If I could do that summer again. If I could choose one bit of my life to do again, it'd be that every day. I just, I just live in there. It was amazing. If I could choose any somewhere, I'd go to a pub. I'd take it <laughs> right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> do you think though that that 2012 Paralympic success was also um, not only for you, but kind of a success for for the recognition of disabilities um, in in society? Because even though we need to get to um, a place. Do you think that that was kind of the start of the journey to get into a place of equality, get into a place of understanding, a place of recognition, a place of a place of um, where the dis- disability of an athlete is compared with the p- perceived ability of, a, of, of an athlete in the same sense? It's really interesting. Like, I remember London as being the most amazing time when we showed people what disabled people do and that we are functioning members of society. And the the further on from London we got, you know, I've, I've had more and more disabled people say to me, like, what you did at London 2012 ruined my life because people now call me a benefits grounder or they call me lazy or, you know, everyone seems to think that I should be doing what you do. I should be a Paralympic champion. And it, it's such a funny way to look at it because we don't look at someone you walk past in the street and go, oh, you can walk. I bet you can beat Usain Bolt in a race. Like, we, we don't do that. So why why did we start doing that with disabled people? You know, it's okay to make a choice. I made a choice to be an athlete. Um, other people don't make that choice. Not everyone wants to do the same thing. And that's fine. But suddenly, from from London 2012, Every disabled person had to do a sport. Every disabled person had to be the next Hannah Cockcroft, the next Johnny Peak, the next whoever. Um, and it was just, it's just the weirdest, the weirdest thing. And I think thankfully now we're coming back from that and we're realising that disabled people can be their own individual. Um, but it was just the strangest time where everyone expected everyone else to do a sport and just don't like it's it's totally fine if you don't want to do sport i'm not gonna make you (laughs) what's wrong with people why would you turn such a positive in what the hell's wrong with Uh, people i I think but in society so often in society (laughs) we kind of see something and we make assumptions that that what we see which might not be the norm of what we see all of a sudden becomes the norm for everybody rather than you a uniquely talented athlete all of a sudden we were exposed to the abilities of what we didn't see in disabled people before. And then because we hadn't been exposed to it, we assume oh, that every person who's disabled has these amazing abilities. When we don't assume, you know, non-disabled people all have these amazing abilities, we just have this assumption that is easier to go along with rather than treat everybody individually. That's it. You're so right. Yeah. It's just easy. Take the easy route. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's not challenging on our brain at all. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like, I think because disability hadn't really been shown at that point, um, everyone just assumed that that's what it was because that's the most exposure we've ever had to it. I suppose everybody visually exposed exposed to some sort of disability that when we were exposed to it and celebrated it, we just had this assumption that everybody in a wheelchair was like the hurricane, you know? Everybody had the ability to do that. So why doesn't everybody in a wheelchair be that when we don't think that of 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 society if they're able-bodied? Just 
you know, I when I talk to and I'm lucky to talk to Hannah now and again, I always ask her about her training, Alfie, because I think it's important people know that the groundwork's put in for uh, Paralympic athletes, just like it is for Olympic athletes. It's it's the same amount of um, of work of sacrifice, of pain goes into it. It's really, really important that people know that. It's not just this nice day out for people in wheelchairs. This yeah. is serious and it's intense and it's scary and it's physical and it's exhausting, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. well, like uh, I just think that every athlete comes under the banner of has worked hard to become an athlete. You're never born an athlete. You don't have a God-given right to be an athlete. It's hard work and dedication that gets you the ability to allow yourself to call an athlete, whether that be in a wheelchair, whether that be able-bodied, whether that be in a swimming pool, in a, in a weightlifting gym. Any form of exercise takes a huge amount of dedication to become the ability to allow yourself to call yourself an athlete. And Hannah, that dedication continues. You're hoping that Tokyo is going to happen for you. How are you feeling about the possibilities at the moment? I'm pretty confident. I I think it's going to go ahead. You know, I was lucky enough in 2019 to go out there for um, the opening of the new stadium, the Olympic Stadium. And I was actually on a relay team with Usain Bolt, which was pretty, <laughs> uh, pretty surreal. Something a bit different for me, definitely. Um, and you know what? They just, they just, they want to do it. You want to do it right. Um, the whole idea behind the race that I was in uh, with Usain Bolt was that, they wanted to sell it like Olympians and Paralympians are equal. If you want to come to one, you've got to come to it all. Like, I just love that. And I just think that they're not going to let that go easy. So I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be interesting. But oh, I'm just I'm just going to be so happy when we get there. <laughs> how, many more, how many goals are you targeting? Um, so I can go for two goals. I can go for the 100 and the 800 this time. Oh, is that all? <laughs> what a letdown. Oh, someone's <laughs> slacking. <laughs> do, you know, do you know when it comes to the um, Olympics and there's one word that always comes before and after Olympics is legacy. Do you feel as a Paralympian that the legacy that's left behind for disabled people um, is... Is I'm going to ask is, is is it more relevant than the legacy that that's left behind from an able-bodied um, Olympics? Because you sometimes you can go to countries. A lot of countries are not as equal as we are here. They don't have the same views as you. So is it is it more relevant sometimes when you go to countries that the Paralympics and the Paralympians make a success of it to make sure that the legacy for people who are disabled in that country um, or the environment for people in that who are disabled in that country um is bettered uh yeah i think the legacy is massively important for the paralympics i think people have always been inspired by the olympics they've always known that they're happening they've always been covered you know they've, they've been there for for years um they started in like the i think like the 60s so they're still relatively new and we've we've grown and grown and grown and obviously London 2012 was the pinnacle of that and that's the one that everyone talks about but we're still growing and you know it's even down to for Rio uh, I went out to Rio with a sponsor before the games and I was training up and down Copacabana Beach and we were so aware that Brazil just they didn't want the Paralympics like the Olympics are exciting but they, they didn't really want us they didn't leave us any money um, <laughs> they didn't want us there at all 
Um, but you know, I was I was training up and down the beach, and and people were like running with me and wanting to train with me and cheering for me. And and then you know, I, I got to the actual games, and and some of the people that, I, that kind of chased me that day came to watch me compete. Um, that's legacy. Do you know what I mean? Like people changed their minds that day because they saw me actually putting some work in, and I see it all the time. But you know, obviously, I only see it in Britain. I go and visit schools and. Uh, go to events and kids come up to me and they go, oh, like, I started wheelchair racing because of you. Like, one of my biggest rivals now watched me race at London 2012 and she can now beat me, which is horrendous. But Bitch. she always says, like, <laughs> I watched you and you showed me what I could do. Yeah, that's amazing. Rude, huh? Um, yeah, it's so rude. Yeah. That's such and, a good story. Yeah, yeah legacy is that. massive. <laughs> like... Yeah, I think it just shows people what they can do. And we've never had a platform really to show what disabled people can do. So you've got to pick the positives out of it. And we see now, uh, going into London 2012, the Ghanaian team came and borrowed racing chairs off us and, uh, and, and competed at London 2012. They then went and competed at uh, the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow a few years later. Um, I can say because it's something that they never before would have afforded. You know, Hannah, we think you're brilliant and just keep doing what you do and keep being brilliant and inspiring people. And I really hope Tokyo happens for you. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, do you want to give a quick shout out to um, any charities or websites uh, that people can go to about tackling disability or, or, or stigma or accessibility? We'd love to hear them. Yeah. Um, I mean, charity wise, there's, there's plenty out there. Scope have loads of information on accessibility. Um but actually, I think just just like everyone's on social media now, go and follow disabled people. Go and go and actually actively change the way that you look at the world. Like make that decision. Go and follow athletes. Go and follow influencers with a disability because they'll show you what real life is about. Like I'm I'm not going to quieten down anytime soon. I want to make a difference, and I'll keep shouting about things that affect me and, and affect people like me. So. Go and, you know, do your research on, on charity websites, but ultimately, like, just open yourself up and and do your own research because it, it's all out there and it's waiting for you to see it. Hannah, the reason you're not going to quiet down isn't because you're one of the best athletes in the country. It's because you're from Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> just goes, goes with the territory. Oh, my word. Well, look, do you know what's brilliant? And it's it's great just, Alfie, isn't it, just to delve into all these different areas of stigma and discrimination and all the different parts of society and people that are affected. But um, we are here under the banner of, of, of the Tackling uh, Stigma uh, podcast. So where can people get more information on it? Uh, for this, for me, on this whole subject about stigma, education is the key. So um, we've got a website, tacklehiv.org. Uh, or go to the Terence Higgins Trust website. Um, or again, if you can, follow us on social media, which is at take tackle HIV. Um, and for me, it's really important that people educate themselves about HIV so that they're able to treat people living with HIV the same that you would treat anybody else. Well said. Brilliant stuff. Um, Alfie, as always, thank you. Uh, Hannah, thank you so much. One last question before you go. It's not sports related. What conditioner... Do you use? Because I'm struggling with mine. I want to ask on the, back, on the back on the back of that. What conditioner to use, and where do you buy your wallpaper? <laughs> what a background! We should have started with those questions. 
<laughs> I know it's coconut milk. I know. I know it's coconut. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. Um, Hannah, thanks so much. Uh, keep training hard. Keep winning. Keep uh, making us proud. Take care of yourself. All Take care, Hannah. Thank you, guys. Thank you.